in the morning You hear the work bell ring And I march you to the table You see the same old thing Ain't no food upon the table There's no fog up in the pan But you better not complain, boy You get in trouble with the man Let the midnight Twilight Zone the movie it was released in 1983 and had a budget of just shy of 30 million dollars it was supposed to be a love letter to the Twilight Zone by a generation of new and fresh up and coming directors who had quite obviously been influenced by it they are Steven Spielberg John Landis Joe Dante and George Miller and in the case of Steven Spielberg he had got one of his first breaks on Rod Serling's other show The Night Gallery so these men you know they obviously had a lot they wanted to say about The Twilight Zone and they wanted to bring it to to a new audience a different generation it didn't necessarily work out that way and uh, we'll talk about that soon But for this podcast, I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I brought a couple of friends on board. Because Twilight Zone, the movie, it is a very divisive movie. There are some people who don't like it at all, there are some people who like parts of it, and there are some people who have a very nostalgic attachment to it. So Chris and Luke and I decided to get together and uh, really examine it for ourselves and see what we think, and we hope you enjoy it. So I uh, I know that I couldn't really do this one alone. So it's my great pleasure to uh, welcome to the podcast uh, first of all the presenter of the Night Gallery podcast, Chris Brown. Chris, how you doing? I'm all right. Not bad. Not bad at all. Good to speak to you. Yeah, you too, man. You too. And also we have uh, the creator, director, writer, and so on of the the Collector's Room, which was the Twilight Zone. In- inspired uh, internet tv show and uh, you've got a lot more strings to your bow as well haven't you luke uh, i certainly have yeah uh co-editor of uh, flickeringmyth.com and many other things uh the host of their podcast as well thanks for coming on 
Thank you very much for having me. Gentlemen, I think a good place to start would be um, Twilight Zone the movie. A lot of people love it. A lot of people hate it. A lot of people like some bits and not other bits and so on. But um, let's start with let's start with our guest, um, Luke. Uh, what's your history with Twilight Zone the movie? Uh, the movie was always something that I I'd, I'd never saw because it was I, I always find it very difficult to find it on DVD. Um, I think as I was getting into the Twilight Zone, uh, I got into it quite late in my life. Um, so I, just as I finished being a student, uh, it was just actually after they uh, they started releasing the uh, the, the seasons uh, as actual seasons rather than just volumes. And um, I couldn't get hold of the DVD. I was in, thinking about importing it. Uh, I'd found a, a very naff version on YouTube, but I, I wanted to watch it properly. Um, and then I was just walking through HMV, and then all of a sudden it was there for a fiver. Um, sort of no release fanfare or anything and I just sort of stumbled upon it I don't know if whether I just completely missed it all these years um, but I purchased it and went home and watched it and um, and yeah so I mean that, that's how I got sort of uh, found out of the movie but it was one of those movies I'd read up a lot on so I kind of knew about it going in right Chris how about you um, it was probably one of my first introductions to the Twilight Zone to be honest with you I was like maybe 12 or 13 and uh, my old geography teacher a guy called Mr. Burke, um, which possibly is the reason why. I don't think you should be showing twelve euros. Possibly the Twilight Zone movie were quite very impressionable. <laughs> but in a um, in a geography class, uh, like this time of year, you know, desperately trying to keep the kids from climbing the walls or tearing the place apart, he showed us um, in double geography, um, like the bulk of it, really. To be fair, I mean, my lasting memory was just being horrified by the prologue and. Um, and just thinking, my God, what the hell is this? <laughs> and uh, from there, like, it kind of initially sparked a bit of an interest that got awakened with me later on, possibly in life when I was a little bit older. And again, once you could start actually getting hold of these things a lot lot easier. Mm. But uh, yeah, no, it was, um, yeah, a, a trial by fire, possibly a little bit, and uh, an unusual introduction, possibly, to the Twilight Zone, in fairness. For myself, which, I mean, some people might consider it odd because... Uh you know, because I, I'm such a fan, but you know, I've always had this bit of a thing, is it really the Twilight Zone without Rod Sailing? You know, and I think a lot a lot of us kind of think that way, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. 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 So, you know, and I understand there's different people who wrote different episodes and so on, but he was always this presence, so I, I just wasn't in a rush to watch it and I'd seen bits and pieces, you know, when you just sort of turn over halfway through, if it's on telly or, or whatever, Um but I'd never watched the thing in its entirety, so uh, I thought best place to explore it is the podcast. So I literally only saw it last night, and that was my first. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first watch from start to finish. Um, so, so yeah, I, ha- I have absolutely no history with Twilight Zone the movie. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's going to be great. Yeah, it'll be most fresh in your mind then. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, sort of. We, well, we, you would hope so, but uh, we'll we'll see. I guess. I guess. <laughs> I mean, we're here to critique it. You know, maybe celebrate it in a way if if we enjoy it. You know, time will tell on that. But there is something that's sort of hanging over Twilight Zone the movie that I think we should get out of the way. Uh, quite early and that is obviously the death of Vic Morrow and the the two young children on set when they were um, filming Time Out which is the first sort of segment now I don't I know the gist of it and I know I've 
I've seen the footage. I, you know, I'm I'm sort of loath to admit that in a way because it, it's a bit of a morbid thing to watch, I suppose. But you know, so I know the gist of it, and I'm not going to comment on it too much because I just I don't know enough about it to really have that much of an opinion, if you like. I mean, what do you guys think? From my point of view, um, I think it's something that like basically touched a lot of the production mm-hmm. of the Twilight Zone in the first place. I mean, there's stories that originally uh, Spielberg was going to do the Monsters of Maple Street and then changed his mind because of it had to be filmed at night and with children, which was an issue with um, the shooting for, for that with what happened. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I think even like when it was public, when it, when it came out, it was a box office success, but I think it, 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 it does does hang over it a little bit that that tragedy and um i still think you know when you watch that first story and then i will touch it in a minute but i i do it does twinge it slightly and it, i i it's difficult to separate the two I and mean, i'm glad we're doing it this way rather than kind of because i think if we didn't it would kind of go throughout the entire podcast you know yeah it, it's it's one of those things where if you talk to someone who knows about the Twilight Zone movie, it's it's almost the first thing that they'll say to you, mm. um, which, which I think is quite sad, really. It, it's it, it obviously it was such a tragedy, but it's as, as Chris said and as you both said, it really does overshadow the movie. So that even if someone is trying to, if you want to talk to someone about it, the first thing that comes into people's heads is this awful tragedy, um, and it it really is it's quite horrible, really. And it, it, it as Chris said, it kind of does taint that first segment. Um, which we'll come on to in a minute, and uh, I can share my thoughts, but it really does kind of sort of leave a sour taste in your mouth. I guess it's quite telling as well that the DVD and Blu-ray editions, there's nothing in the way of special features or anything. like. I don't think anyone really wants to go back to it because, you know, you couldn't have an audio commentary to that film or a documentary about that film and just have that not be such a big part of it, you know? I mean the entire. But the other third side of it is, I mean the the, the I mean it trundled on for years. I mean there was, um, I mean the the uh, the court case for manslaughter where everyone was found not guilty. Um, that didn't happen until 1987. So there was like you know four years of kind of this overhanging and overhanging all those people's lives as well. I think um, it you know it's worth mentioning that if anyone does want to learn more about it and the court case afterwards um there are two books that are out there uh, one is called special effects and that's by uh, ron lebrec i think you uh, pronounce his name and the other one is outrageous conduct by stephen farber and mark green uh, and that's uh, subtitled art ego and the twilight zone case so you know there's plenty of online stuff about it too if you want to learn more but um I think for the you know for the sake of uh, this is a Christmas special and <laughs> yeah. we don't want to. I was thinking that we don't want to dwell on it too much. Unless there's anything else you guys want to add, we will uh, we'll raise a glass to um, to Vic Morrow and those those two kids, and we'll leave it at that. Did you ever watch the Twilight Zone? <laughs> Oh, God. Remember the Twilight Zone with Burgess Meredith? 
Remember, he, he, he loved to read, and there was a nuclear war, and he had no friends anyway, and he was oh, down in the yeah, basement of the library. Yes, he was the last man he broke his glasses. Yeah. This thing freaked me out. When I was seven years old, I bought another pair of glasses just in case that would happen. Oh, those shows. They, they were so good. They were yeah. so scary. Yeah. Oh, great. They were great. Remember the one where the guy had the stopwatch? Somebody in a bar gave him a stopwatch, and he was this real obnoxious guy, and he took the stopwatch, and he hit it, and everybody else in time froze but him. That's an Outer Limits. No, that was a zone. That's an outer limits. That was a zone. Oh, they had one about the mannequins that got two weeks off and turned into humans, and they were allowed to go out and shop for two weeks on their own. And then this one came back, and it was over two weeks, and the other mannequins went, come over here for a minute, and turned her into plastic. Boy, they were they were scary. They were great. I loved it. Hey, you, you want to see something really scary? You bet. Mention to the prologue, I guess, before we get into each story. It's probably the most quoted thing in the, in the movie. You want to see something, you know, really scary or whatever. Um... And we've got Dan Aykroyd and what's the other guy? Albert Brooks on this road trip, uh, remember, in the Twilight Zone. And a bit of a comedy opener, tonally not quite in keeping with the old Twilight Zone. Uh, thoughts on the opening? When I first saw the movie, it kind of struck me as very weird. I was watching it with a friend of mine and we could, we could sort of telegraph where it was going. You know, the two guys sitting around talking about these... Um, uh, playing the, the guest in the TV theme song. Mm. And you're like, okay, well, they're obviously going to twig and do the Twilight Zone. But then it just keeps going and going and going and going. And after a while, you're thinking, okay, we, we know where the gag's coming. but and then, they don't, and then they actually don't do the gag and they stop playing it and then just say, oh, do you remember the Twilight Zone? Um, it always seems like a really... I think you're all right. It, it tonally, it doesn't... It, for me, it's not very in keeping with the original series. And uh, it does feel like a very odd opening to the movie mm. um i mean even the uh the, the twist so to speak that comes at the end seems very strange um and you're not really sure who these people are or it, it i wasn't actually when i was watching it uh, this week um i wasn't sure if dan Aykroyd was a hitchhiker that you picked up or or whether they were actually friends um so i do think that it's a it's it's a very odd opening to the movie i think from my point of view i really like the way it takes its time getting to it um because you kind of it does build up this sense of dread, you know what I mean? That is obvious. Because he does, you know, there's there is there is going to be this kind of twist that it's going to turn or something's going to something quite violent's going to happen. Um, the thing I like about that is the fact that he, it it's so drawn out that it kind of drags you in, and it's all about that ant- anticipation of the uh, of of the reveal. Because like it, it, it's you know he turns away for a second, and then turns back again, and he's like you know, are, are you sure? You sure? And it's like you know you can you can feel yourself kind of. Just turn, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing that rewatching this for the first time in quite a while, the thing that really stuck out for me was just how long you let it sit and kind of you're in the car for so long, and the conversation you have is ludicrously mundane. I mean, it's real, like <laughs> it's so determined to be time killing, <laughs> yeah. kind of. You know, <laughs> with the exception of the is it just the stupid stupidity of turn, turning his, uh, his headlights off and kind of going, isn't this frightening? Mm. There isn't any kind of drama as such until right at the end and, you know, the Acro character turns into this, that very heavily, quite he's blue, isn't he? Like yeah. chrome makeup kind of monster. And then and then just effectively just shakes him. I know there's not much of a... It's it's very bloodless in that kind of sense. Not quite sure what I feel about it to be honest. I guess you know it, it's maybe it's stating it's stating that okay this this is a new Twilight Zone. This is going to be a bit different. It's a Twilight Zone for its time, but 
I'm not sure it really works for me, to be honest. I, I don't feel it really needs it as such. But again, I like the idea of something tying it all together. But it's, it's not... It's not a prologue in the usual sense of a of an anthology like Creepshow or something, where something ties everything together. It's just a, a funny, quirky little intro, and it has a bit of a payoff at the end. But you know, it's not really tying them together as such. So I'm a I'm a bit on the fence with this one. Yeah, I think the original idea was that these stories are going to kind of leak into each other a little bit more, like one character for one story would lead into the other one. Right. But uh, I think that got banged on the head after they, well, the, the order of the film is very different anyway, because um, Kick the Can's film was filmed last. But um, but that obviously didn't happen uh-huh. um, for, for, you know, for, for whatever reason. And um, so... That, so originally if that had happened it would have been like a loop as all the characters kind of bled into each one ah. so it would have been a lot more like um, a, a more traditional anthology as kind of everything kind of merges together yeah. um, but obviously you know what what you're left with is quite a basically a, a little short story which although quite iconic you know what I mean is kind of like the, the thing that everyone mentions same thing that everyone mentions about the film is actually kind of more just says like all bets are off. You're in the twilight zone now, mm. kind of thing, rather than anything else. I, I suppose the 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 one gag I kind of do like about it is obviously D- Dan Aykroyd's uh, character of such appears at the end. What it is Dan Dan Aykroyd appears at, at the end of the movie that it does make it feel like the twilight zone is one world and this the fifth dimension is one whole place because it's something that the twilight zone as a show never really had. It you, you know that this is the quote unquote the fifth dimension, but you know is Willoughby really just down the road from you know some of the other towns that are that feature in the twilight zone so i think that with the movie it does feel like it's one complete world if you sort of see what i mean and i kind of i quite like that aspect of it it does uh, ring true with the com- uh, conversations i've had with people as well when you talk about a twilight zone episode and they think it's from a different anthology show mm. And you kind of go back and forth about it. No, no, I'm fairly certain that was in a Twilight Zone episode. Yeah, it's always the outer limits, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, then we have um, the uh, you know the the music and so on, and Burgess Meredith doing the the opening narration, which I think is a really nice touch, to be honest, because he is one of those people who uh, he was in Twilight Zone, I think, four times, maybe. Yeah, four times. And then he was obviously in Night Gallery as well. So, yeah, yeah, he was. You know, it's, it's a nice little touch, I think. You unlock this door with a key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Yeah, no, I mean, um, yeah, it's. I think they do make a ton of attempts to tie it back to, um, to, to the original series and stuff. Um, you know, obviously the very end of Rod Serling's narration, but also um, I think Rod Serling's in is like a little is in, actually in the eye when they do the intro section, yeah. so they do try and nod to it um, before then. Obviously, go into timeout, which doesn't really feel much like a Twilight Zone story. I think it's fair to say. 
you're about to meet an angry man, Mr. William Connor, who carries on his shoulder a chip the size of the national debt. This is a sour man, a lonely man, who's tired of waiting for the breaks that come to others, but never to him. Mr. William Connor, whose own blind hatred is about to catapult him into the darkest corner of the Twilight Zone. Let's talk about our first story, which is uh, the one we touched upon earlier, which is Time Out, uh, written and directed by John Landis. It's uh, the film's only original segment, although it's supposed to be loosely based on the original Twilight Zone episode, The Quality of Mercy, uh, with the opening narration borrowing from What You Need and A Nice Place to Visit. I'll just uh, read a brief intro uh, from Wikipedia about what it's about. It says, Bill Connor is an outspoken bigot who is bitter after being passed over for promotion. Drinking in a bar after work with friends, Bill makes prejudiced remarks and racial slurs towards Jews, blacks and Asians, attracting the attention of a group of black men sitting near them who strongly resent his racist comments. Bill leaves the bar very angry, but when he walks outside, the supernatural tone begins. Um, perhaps it's best to throw up a spoiler warning, because I, I think, especially considering all the other stories are based on old Twilight Zone stories, I think we should pretty much uh, say the gloves are off for this one and uh, <laughs> and speak about yeah. everything, and spoilers, you know, be damned. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, um, it's the only really way to do it, and I think most people who listen to this probably will have watched the show well hopefully watched the film yeah, yeah absolutely so it, it's been out for nearly 20 years <laughs> yeah that's always my argument night galleries i spoil the every single story every time yeah yeah and at least i can say it's been out for 50 years with my one so <laughs> um, okay chris you're you what what do you think of um time out i think it's probably the weakest story um I think i can understand why it's where it is in the anthology because it's like the most um exciting it's got it's you know it's, it's the most effects heavy i think i would have preferred it if there'd been more tension i think in the bar when he's saying all this stuff and then a couple of lads take offense to it and come over and basically tell him to shut up um it, it doesn't feel like there's any real sense that he's on the edge kind of as a person which kind of leans the rest of it kind of just just bang bang effects effectively because he, he, he effectively falls between each individual um a, a violent event you know he, he gets shot in the arm and then he's in vietnam and then he's you know then, then he's on the train at the end i think the interesting thing about it was originally i think it was meant to be in a redemption story that um he would he would be unable to save the two vietnamese children mm-hmm. and then um would be and then but would you know would learn the error of his ways at the end of it. Instead, what we kind of have is a, a succession of quite um, you know grandstand action moments, and then the just the horrible scene when the train goes away. I don't know how much of that is just by what happened uh, w- w- during the shooting, um, but for me, it just feels really one note flat. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting you say that because I was reading up on this today and from what I read, originally Landis' first kind of draft of it was very much like this where there's no there's no real journey for him. He just sort of, you know, he, he says all these bigoted comments in the bar and then 
Uh, he's just basically punished for it by, you know, the Twilight Zone or whatever. But I think it was possibly the studio who wanted something a bit more, so they added this this thing about him actually redeeming himself with this heroic act, saving the two kids. After the tragedy, they had to put things back to pretty much what Landis had intended in the first place. I, I think it's... um. Tonally, it, it's trying to capture some of the kind of classic Twilight Zone episodes because there were plenty of episodes that tried to tackle racism mm. uh, and bigotry, this, that, and the other. And I think, I think that's what Landis was going for. Um, and I suppose, but it, it, for me, it, it, it's trying to hit those notes, but misses each one of them. Um, and it's trying to do this kind of supernatural thing where they, he falls into each of these different, like he's feeling the prejudice, uh, the prejudices that he gives, um, and. It, but for me, the, the the segment doesn't really work. It just kind of sort of stumbles along. And I, I, I know we've we've all discussed about how uh, there are certain Twilight Zone episodes that don't really explain what's going on or why he's in this work, why he's in this predicament, or how this predicament is happening. Mm. But I think for something like this, it does need some semblance of explanation. Um, I mean, even with it's just, especially like the, the the first bit when he's confronted by the Nazis, because there's no subtitles you're not entirely certain what's going on and you don't really you don't assume straight away that they just they think he's a jew i don't know whether they need to do like a, a quantum leap style of him looking in a, a reflection um and seeing himself as as someone else um i don't know whether it, that's what it needed but it is missing something um and as a whole as a whole i think the ep- the, the segment does fail i i would agree with that i think um it's quite unsophisticated, you know, and that's not to say that all Twilight Zones were really sophisticated or anything like that. They could be quite simplistic, but um, there was always something there, or there was usually something there that just kind of raised it above. Or, I mean, what's what's that episode? I can't remember uh, the name of it now. I have talked about it on the podcast where they come back from space and they start disappearing one by one. Uh, yeah, um, we'd have to IMDb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that's ridiculous. And it'll be people listening to scream at us now. Let's check the Twilight Zone network. I hear they're quite good. <laughs> <laughs> and when the sky was opened. There we go. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you get the feeling in that that something's going wrong. You have absolutely no clue what it is, but there's just this sense that something is pulling the strings or some power someone whereas you don't you don't get that at all with um with time out i mean it 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 does feel flat it, it's just like okay you've done this so this is going to happen to you the end you know as, as i said it, it it's it feels like it's trying to do something that the twilight zone uh used to do but just completely misses the mark yeah yeah absolutely what I will say, though, and I'm not just saying this because of the tragedy, but I, I do think Vic Morrow is very good in it, especially in that opening scene. He, he He's just got that sort of weary, world-weary kind of look. Yeah, he, he does kind of carry that kind of burnt-out kind of thing, doesn't he, quite well, like the salesman who's once one you know sell too many yeah yeah definitely definitely it's also it's also really weird i suppose i think you said earlier some that from the opening prologue it is this is the new twilight zone and this is the direction we're taking it and then in that opening scene where he is using the the, the racist language that he does it i'm not sure whether it's just because it's a twilight zone movie and it's something that i'm not expecting but 
I'm almost kind of, I'm almost still shocked by it every time. I'm not, I'm not shocked by it whenever I see it in other films. But I think just because it's a Twilight Zone movie, it does take, does it kind of catch me off guard? His, his language is very strong, to be fair. Yeah, I mean, what rating did this movie get? Do we know? I don't know. It's a fifteen. It's a, was it? It's a fifteen I, over here. Yeah. I was going to say my DVDs are twelve. Has been re-rated down. It must have been. Oh, it might well have been. Yeah, because it just really doesn't pull its punches. I do remember hearing that kind of language a lot more back in the day, to be honest. Not as much now unless you're watching a certain type of film. But, um, yeah, it doesn't pull its punches at all. So, yeah, I mean, I've not got much much more to say on it. It, it is what it is. It, with a little bit of uh, tweaking, you know, a bit of rewrites and, you know, obviously without the tragedy... There was potential there. It's nice that they at least had this one story that was something new and wasn't just remaking something else. But, uh, yeah, falls short, unfortunately. If they'd gone with uh, an original story, considering that it's it's John Landis in the director's chair, um, is there an episode you guys would have had in mind that you'd have liked to have seen him do? Um, That's a good question. I've got to say I don't know because... For me, and I guess we'll talk about this later with the Twilight Zone movie, but for me, it just seems such a pointless exercise when uh, Twilight Zone episodes, a lot of them do have a bit of a twist. To remake them just seems so pointless. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Um, I can't see a massive reason to to do it. For, to do it. Um, I think when, you know, leading on to the 80s series... Um, that's at its strongest when it tries to do something a little bit different. So, I mean, all, all credit to Landis to try and, you know, come straight out doing the prologue and doing the first story and, you know, really trying to, like, lead the way and say, you know, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to take these ideas and move them on and move them in a different direction. And, you know, whether it works or not, you know, that, that that's up for discussion. But um, particularly because... It, it, you know, I say we're going to talk, probably talk about this in a bit when we talk about um, what what's happening now with the Twilight Zone. Um, you know, there's an there's certain expectations people have with the ser- with this with, with when you mention that name, and one of them is a twist. Mm. So, for, for, you know, for better or worse, and you know, a lot of Twilight Zone episodes don't have a twist, but that expectation is there now. So I, I wonder whether doing a remake, people will just be like, "Oh, I'm not so sure about this." I mean. You know that that's my feeling on it. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Why was that? Was there something you had in mind, Luke, for a Landis? One? Uh, not no, not really. It was it was just something that came to us then. Yeah. Um, just something because it is the only original story. Um, it's uh, that in the prologue. It's as I was saying earlier, it feels like a very weird opening to the movie, and then this segment coming first. It's you, you're not really kind of settled into this quote unquote new Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know whether it's whether they'd have been better off having an episode or the first segment being one that people recognize or not. But I do agree with you, actually, that sort of looking back on it, that just remaking episodes, especially if it's people who've gone to see the movie who know the episodes themselves, it is kind of a pointless exercise. Mm. And, and, you know, I, I say that as someone I don't actually mind remakes in general. I like to see new takes on on existing things. But these just you know like i say if if you know what's coming then there's just no real point to it it is sometimes said that where there is no hope there is no life case in point the residents of sunnyvale rest home where hope is just a memory 
but Hope just checked into Sunnyvale, disguised as an elderly optimist who carries his magic in a shiny tin can. Well, next up we have Kick the Can, directed by Steven Spielberg, and that's based on the episode of the same same name uh, that was written by uh, George Clayton Johnson, I think. The plot is an old man named Mr. Bloom, played by Scatman Crothers, has just moved into Sunnydale Retirement Home, and upon his arrival, he sits around kindly and smiles as he listens to the other elders reminisce about the joys they experienced in their youth. Uh, Mr. Bloom implies to them that just because they are old, it doesn't mean they can't enjoy life anymore, and that feeling young and active has to do with your attitude, not your age. And he tells them later that night he'll wake them up and they can join him in a game of kick the can. And uh, obviously uh, Leo Conroy disagrees, saying now they're old and they can't engage in physical activity and so on. Uh, but they play anyway and then we have this magical kind of result, I guess. Um, so I guess we'll go with you, Luke, first uh, on this one. What are your thoughts on the new version of kick the can? Again, much like the, the, the first segment with Time Out, because of the production, it feels kind of tainted because I would have really liked to have seen Spielberg's take on uh, the monsters you do on Maple Street. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I, personally, from a standpoint, I do find this segment to be a bit boring. Um, it's very slow moving, and I, I get that it's meant to be slow moving, but it's it's kind of laced with that Spielberg, uh, the Spielberg schmaltz and whimsicalness, and it's. Uh, yeah, I don't know. There's something about it that just sort of doesn't work for me, really. I, I think Scatman Crothers is great in the episode, and I think the kids actually do a very good job as well. Hmm. Um, but as a whole, I just think it's it's a bit kind of boring, and so not a lot really happens in it, to be honest. I mean, I quite enjoy it. Um, I think it's, um, I mean, if we talk about the DAT show being, you know, very much of its time, I think it's the one that is it's the most Spielberg. I mean, obviously, you know, it's the one he directed, but it feels very Spielberg like it has its very has his tone to it. I think it's quite well directed. I think he, he has uh, there's some lovely little shots. He, he seems fascinated by all, every wrink, wrinkle and crevice on, on, on the on their characters faces. He gets right in there, but it has a, a great warmth as well in all the shots. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's it's very gentle, I would say. I think I understand why. Luke finds it boring. It's 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 a very simple story. Um, there's some nice little touches. Um, you know, uh, obviously Mr. Bloom is such a a lovely character. But I mean, you know, they they seem to be like a, quite a lot of this kind of. I mean, me, I don't know. I I'm not sure about the order stuff, but you know, he compares to someone like Bashy's not included or Cocoon, and yeah, there was kind of a, yeah. a thing for that kind of stuff in the eighties. I'm not sure. Which came first? I should have checked before, before I said that. But um, but yeah, so it, it has a very certain tone to it. it. It's not the weakest, I think, but um, I think it kind of this is for me is where things start picking up and it starts getting a little bit more solid. And also, I think it's nice that um, one of the stories in in this anthology does does show the fact that you know the Twilight Zone wasn't all just twists or you know somebody getting the comeuppance. Some of the stories where you know, just heartwarming tales that say sailing pens, even if this wasn't a sailing story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I don't want to sit here and and compare them to the originals, but I guess you have to in a way. Um, and for, there's things I like about it compared to the original, things that I think the original obviously did better. I think having Scatman Crothers as this sort of 
he's a bit of a wandering sort of uh, soul, I guess, who's who's just going around spreading this message and you know bringing a bit of happiness back to people who who really need it. And it is a bit schmaltzy, I guess, um, but the message is good, you know that even though you're you're getting older just try and be younger heart and and don't let it get you down and and so on which is cool which is nice if i remember rightly and it's been a while since i watched the original i don't think we really see the kids properly in the original one do we if if memory serves the episode ends with them becoming kids yeah and we might see fleeting sort of glances i can't remember but it worked really really well that it was a bit haunting. You had this old guy who was left behind and just the sound of the kids and maybe uh, the odd glimpse. And, you know, and if you don't see this odd glimpse, the fact that my mind has created it, uh, it sort of shows how potent an image it was. It it was quite haunting and a little bit spooky in a way. Um, but, But this one just goes sort of all out and we see all, all the kids and stuff, which, you know, props to them. He, he went his own way um, and tried to do something a bit different with it, which is cool. I just, for me, the original did it a lot better. I do agree with uh, with what Chris was saying, actually, and it's, it's a really good point that it's it was a good choice for Spielberg to do an episode that wasn't just like the sci-fi or scary elements. It showed that the Twilight Zone did have a lot more heart about it than just like, oh, scary twist ending. Mm-hmm. So... I, I do think that was a really nice choice. I just wish he'd picked a different story than Kick the Can because, I, I mean, again, I wasn't a big fan of the original episode either. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, perhaps that that might have something to do with why I don't like this segment. Um, but, yeah, I think that he... I, I wish he'd have picked a different story. I, I don't dislike it as a whole. I just... I don't love it, but I'm, I'm kind of okay with it. But, uh, yeah, I don't really love it. I think for me as well is that, especially the first time watching through the movie... Uh, there was a prologue that I didn't really didn't think that was kind of a right opening for it, and then I didn't really like Time Out because I thought it was flawed. And then with this, where I was kind of I, I didn't like either because I was kind of bored. You, you're kind of looking at it now, feeling I was quite disillusioned by the movie. Really, <laughs> so so excited to watch a Twilight Zone movie, and I'm like, oh, I haven't liked anything up until this point. <laughs> uh, I think it's fair to say it is a massive shift, change in tone. Like I mean, ridiculously large. Because um, normally these anthology things, you have a little, you know, you have something like as a breather, don't need to kind of go, <gasps> and then you're back into the next story. Um, obviously, you know, from my own back as Night Gallery, you know, Uncle Rod pops up and shows you the next <laughs> picture and says something lovely, you know, you know, some wonderful prose, and then there's big bassy tones, and you're into the next thing. Mm-hmm. But without that, I mean, you know, you've literally, you literally go from. Auschwitz train to old folks home in about two seconds <laughs> with them having a nice game of kick the can <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> didn't you say before Chris it was actually going to be the, the last story no it, well it's um, there, there wasn't um, it was filmed last right right um, I don't I mean originally each story was going to kind of like a character from each one but that was obviously banged on the head because time out was filmed first mm. So, um, so I think that gave them the opportunity to change when it was going to fit. I mean, you could not finish the show with that and this film with that. I don't think it's just so chilled in comparison to the rest of it. I mean, people might walk out being quite happy, but I think they might feel a bit shortchanged by, yeah. by you know, the Twilight Zone movie. 
Definitely. I suppose if it's if you consider it to be a five segment movie, uh, having this one as the middle segment is uh, certainly a wise choice. Really, uh, yeah. if you have sort of two horror segments and then this one, it's quite nice and chilled. And then, especially because the next two uh, are quite full on, um, especially the last one. Uh, it, it was quite a, a wise move for me to put it in the in this middle position. Portrait of a woman in transit. Helen Foley, age 27. Occupation, school teacher. Up until now, the pattern of her life has been one of unrelenting sameness, waiting for something different to happen. Helen Foley doesn't know it yet, but her waiting has just ended. Next up, we've got a, uh, a story directed by Joe Dante, um, and it's based on the original episode, It's a Good Life. It says the opening narration is borrowed in part from Night Call. I can't remember that, but uh, I'll look out for it in the future. It said, mild-mannered Helen Foley, travelling to a new job, visits a rural bar for directions. While talking to the owner, Dick Miller, she witnesses Anthony, a young boy playing an arcade game, who is being blamed by a pair of locals, by a pair of locals for accidentally causing interference on the TV by slapping the side of the game. When one of the men pushes Anthony away from the game and pulls a plug, Helen comes to the boy's defence. He runs out of the restaurant. Uh, She backs into the boy, damaging his bicycle, and gives him a ride home. And when they arrive at Anthony's house, uh, she meets his family. When Anthony starts to show Helen around the house, uh, we basically see that Anthony isn't quite how he seems, and he seems to have this strange power over his family. And... uh, a bit more than that really so um i guess i'll i'll go first on this one it's it's based on it's a good life which is probably one of the landmark twilight zone episodes in terms of ones that people know and recognize would you agree absolutely oh, yeah, yeah. yeah so again it, it's it's one of those ones that well well I know the story, but they they do add a few bits to it, like the the character of Helen Foley um, going through it is, I think, a bit different. And again, it's a while since I watched It's a Good Life. There's there's a lot I like about this one. I mean, you meant touch before Luke about how they tie things together a bit, and the start of this one is just Twilight Zone reference after Twilight Zone reference, and then you've got yeah. Bill Moomy sitting in the bar and so on. I guess where it doesn't quite work for me is I think they could have chose a better Anthony. I, I don't think he's as effective as Bill Moomy was in the original. He's a bit older and he's a bit more aware, whereas Bill Moomy was younger and more of a child who, who would do things, who could just do anything on a whim, whereas this Anthony was a bit older and you felt like you could probably reason with this Anthony. And strange things like the, the guy who you know pushed him over and stuff like that will... And Anthony just doesn't do nothing about it, whereas the old one would have put him out in the in the cornfield, you know what I mean, or something like that. <laughs> um, so there's a lot that doesn't really quite add up for me, but but then, you know, the more it goes on, the better it gets for me. Um, I really, really like this segment. Um, I think I think probably just from a sort of a visual aspect of it, I think Jay Dante has a really interesting sort of uh, visual for the, uh, for this segment. Um, even just when Helen's walking around, like kind of the black and whites 
upstairs of the room and uh, you know the cartoons that he picks uh, to to place around the house um I, I do agree with you i think that um that this anthony isn't that great um he, he doesn't he doesn't have that childlike innocence about him which i think re- that the anthony character does need mm. um but i really like his supporting family and i think that they do a really really good job and so you know when when uh, he takes uh, Helen Foley upstairs, and they they root through her bag, and they write him the little note. Uh, they write her the little note uh, asking for help. Mm. And there's just just little touches like uh, uh, he, when he's uh, introducing Helen to his his other sister that's uh, kept away upstairs, and you have that nice kind of creeping up shot to reveal that he's taken away her mouth. I, I think little touches like that are really nice. It, it does kind of have, have this slow build to to the reveal of Anthony's powers. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some, yeah, as I said, I think there's some really, really nice touches uh, to this. Uh, I think it overstays its welcome a little bit. It, it kind of goes on for a bit too long. But overall, I, I do think it, it's a it's a really, really strong segment. And, and as I said um, uh, during Kick the Camera, I was starting to get a bit bored. This kind of breathed a bit of life into the film for me, um, and, and it kind of really, really, you know, really grabbed my interest. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I, I thought we got, I might have a fight on my hands on with this one, um, just because it's so, um, it's a bit, you know, because it, it is an original, it, well, it's not original, it's 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 one of the uh, original stories, but uh, Dante kind of takes it and kind of shakes it a little bit and, and injects quite a lot of his own personality into it. The obsession with comic, uh, with uh, cartoons and that attic scene, which is um, which is all black and white, which is obviously a nod to um, to the Twilight Zone. But um, also it has a certain, um, but it has, it's very, very day glow and quite bright and colourful. And obviously, you know, you're talking about um, Twilight Zone Easter eggs, as it were, in this episode. But obviously, you know, Kevin McCarthy, who was in Long Live Walter Jameson, who has like this massive kind of, I mean, he's just full on crazy in this, really. You know, the the, the that family dynamic with us, so horrified and terrified is is really impressive i always think i really liked the uh the, the change in story that uh, that dante made or the, the script writer because uh, it was um did, did matheson write this the 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 movie version of this as well um uh, he rewrote the ending for it oh, okay um because i really like the fact that it's you assume that is his family uh that that is in that house and then obviously the reveal later on is that they, they're not his family. They were just people that he led to the house and kept there yeah, under yeah. house arrest almost. And you don't know what happened to his original family. And I think that right, that makes him a very sinister character. I mean, it's, he's not, as I said, he's not quite as good as the original Anthony, but as a character, he's, it does make him more sinister and a lot more evil. And you just kind of wonder how many other people he's led up to this house. And I, I think that's a really interesting dynamic to add to to the story. It's interesting that this Anthony actually learns something. He he moves on, whereas the last one just sort of uh, remains as this this horrible sort of kid. Well, until the sequel years later in the nineties. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, this Anthony kind of almost learns that. Well, what I've been doing. It's not really right, I suppose. He does kind of get some kind of unusual redemption in this, at the end, and the, you know, with the bloom and flowers and all that kind of stuff, he gets um, he gets to kind of you know use his power for good almost. Which uh, obviously, I think in the original, doesn't he effectively kill his brother and then 
destroy the crop and then that kind of finishes <laughs> yeah, it's a bit more upbeat uh, than the original episode <laughs> I do think the the original uh, is one of the really effective in, in some horrific aspects in terms of you don't actually see things doesn't he turn a dog inside out or something I can't remember he does uh, isn't there's the jack-in-the-box thing, isn't there, where you see it in shadow? That's the thing that always sticks in my mind. Yeah, there's, there's a few things like that. Uh, I don't know whether the inside-out dog's actually there or not, but I don't know. But there's a few <laughs> things like that where you don't actually see it, but it's suggested, and it's it's quite horrible. Um, whereas this is, I suppose, a bit more in your face, but when it's Joe Dante doing it, okay, I'll, you know, I'll have that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, because, you know, we're talking about iconic scenes and stuff. I mean the the, the, the the monstrous rabbit coming out the hat mm. is what one that ever sticks in a lot of people's minds. I think um when people watched it when possibly when they're a bit too young, it's kind of a, one of those jump scares that grabs you a bit, you know. It's kind of an odd moment in there. I mean this is not really anything of, of worthy of note, but when the uh, he knocks over um Nancy Cartwright's plate and stands up and says, I didn't do it. So it was quite a funny reference that that would become one of Bart Simpson's catchphrases <laughs> later on in The Simpsons. Yeah. Simpsons, the, the the greatest parody of every Twilight Zone ever. By the <laughs> Twenty years of ripping the stories off now. Because mm. I think actually in one of the ha- um, uh, Treehouse of Horrors, they did do a spoof of It's a Good Life with uh, with Bart having the um, uh, the Anthony Powers. Yeah, Homer's Homer's heads on the Jack in the Box. That's the yeah exactly that's the one. Yeah. you're looking at could be the end of a particularly terrifying nightmare it isn't it's the beginning introducing mr john valentine air traveler his destination the twilight zone fourth segment is a remake of the the richard matheson episode uh, nightmare at Twenty Thousand feet it's directed by george miller and it's about a nervous airline passenger mr valentine played by john lithgow and uh he's he's in a lavatory he's recovering from what seems to be a panic attack and i guess i won't go into this too much because basically he's sitting in his seat and he sees something on the wing and uh you know we all know the story it's a gremlin turning the plane apart and he's he's trying to convince everyone uh, that it's there one again one of the most iconic Twilight Zone episodes. Everyone knows this one, even if they haven't seen it. But um, I would probably be willing to put money on this being everyone's favourite segment. One hundred percent. Yeah, it's easily my favourite segment of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay, Chris, do you want to start this one? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, I mean, the thing that sticks in the mind is um, it's 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 the story that's most faithful to the original uh, episode, Mm. certainly. So it kind of it does prove that if you if you can kind of just go for it you can do it right you know despite what we've been talking about what's the point i suppose the, the point is that if you've got john lifko just going for it at the centerpiece you know trying to out shatner shatner mm. you can <laughs> you can really make something happen you know what i mean because he does absolutely just go for it he starts off crazy and then escalates into just unbelievable craziness <laughs> By the end, I mean, well, you know, it, it's far more believable that he turns into a gibbering wreck when you see he's already breaking down and he hasn't even seen a gremlin on the plane yet, you know. Um, it also shows, I think, the, the benefits of having, a, you know, a couple more quid 
uh, to be able to to afford better effects on that plane. It doesn't look so much like a set mm. as the original does. It looks like a, a you know well, it looks like what it is, which is a Hollywood production. Um, I think uh, you know George Miller managed managed to keep it very tight and um, it doesn't waste any time, um, but it tells its story extremely well. Uh, so I think in that sense, it, it's it's probably the most successful. I mean, I really like um, uh, I really like It's a Good Life. Um, I think it's a great. It, I think it's it's an example of being able to take an original, you know, the the original idea and being able to change it and kind of in, inject some of your own personality into it. Whereas you know, George Miller effectively, rather than do that, just thinks bigger in terms of its production. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think with a lesser actor in that role of um, John Valentine, I think it might have fallen apart. But Lithgow at this stage was just able to pull out these fantastically deranged performances. So I think it works fantastically well. Uh, again, I've got to agree with everyone sort of on this one that it's just really kind of, he ramps up the tension in it. And John Lithgow's performance is just outstanding. Like, it's it's rather than it be a dissension into madness, it's a dissension further into madness uh, <laughs> to for him, really. Um, funny enough, uh, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet was the first Twilight Zone episode I ever saw. Um, so it's, I, I, I don't know whether that's one of the reasons why I, I like this uh, so much and why the episode always sticks in my mind uh, and, and Shatner's very Shatner-esque performance sticks in my mind. Um, but yeah, I just think that George Miller has such a, he really does ramp up the tension to the point where you almost feel like you're sweating yourself um, watching John Lithgow go further and further. I also think that the, the design of the gremlin is, I mean, clearly it's a lot better than what it was in the original series. Cause the, you know, the budget was about, you know, a packet of peanuts and a fiver. Mm. Um, so I think that with the, with the budget, it, the, the gremlin does look much better. looks much scarier. Um, which I think really does add to it. And you don't really see it that well. It's always in, you only see it in flashes of lightning or sort of in that final shot where uh, he just, he almost gives uh, John Lithgow that little nod uh, before bouncing off. Um, but yeah, I, I think as a whole, the, the segment's fantastic. Really, really good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like what you said, Chris, about um, the way George Miller, he, he doesn't change anything. He just makes it bigger. And I absolutely agree. I mean, the I love the original, um, but the the thing that sells the gremlin in the original is the way he moves, and it sort of distracts you from the fact that it's just a guy in a big onesie, you know, just sort of <laughs> <laughs> just uh, jumping around on the wing. And I still a giant fuzzy bear. I think it still works, but you know, you can poke a bit of fun at it, I suppose. Um, Shatner's good in it, and I mean, some people say I can't remember whether it was Dante himself as a criticism of his own work that um, Lithgow, where the Shatner sort of starts at down here and ends up up there, Lithgow's already up there, and he's got nowhere else to go. But as you said, he's already up there, but he finds somewhere else to go. He, you know, he. He, he does, he does, because he just gets more and more nuts. As, I mean, do, what do you think of that criticism? I think it's his. He doesn't have a. I mean, as in terms of like classical storytelling, he doesn't have much of an arc because mm. he doesn't. He doesn't actually learn anything. He just he because he has no. Because he is 
that nuts at the start. He can't. He doesn't really try and persuade anybody apart from to just scream. Mm. So, but at the same time, that the thing, the issue is with the well, the first thing about the original is you, you kind of think so. Well, is is there a gremlin on the plane, or is this just as yeah, there is yeah, mm. blatantly there is. He's nuts though. Are they going to get down? Okay, <laughs> so it's a bit more. It's a bit different. I mean, I can understand where uh, Joe Dante is coming from, but you've got twenty minutes to tell that story in. If he comes on like Mr. Cool and then five minutes in screaming mm. that there's a monster on the plane, you're wondering where it's come from. I mean, there's almost like a, it almost alludes to the fact that the, the, the you know the, the pills he's going to take, you know, the um, he gets given like a Valium or something like that, doesn't he? Mm. Like whether that's some kind of catalyst to his madness, and I quite like that little nod to it before it finally just flips into no, there's a there's, you know engines are blowing up for a specific reason, and that's. Uh, some deep in the electricity we'll try now anyway and i do think there's a, a a lot to like about this segment i, I really do yeah there's a one moment actually in uh, in lithgow's performance that i really like as we were just saying that he because he starts off and he's in the toilet and he's absolutely losing his mind and it's a tour de force of, of filmmaking but there's a moment where he sits down and he lights up a cigarette and you've never seen a man enjoy a cigarette <laughs> so much in your entire <laughs> life <laughs> And then it gets stopped, doesn't it? Then there's the yeah, annoying exactly. kids, like, straight in, they go, we're not allowed to smoke. And the big <laughs> fella's like, you know, I mean, I'm smoking myself. And just just, just somebody's going, you can't smoke that. He's like, oh, you little swine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, just, you wonder, like, that was the only thing that could calm him down. And uh, it's, it's taken away from him by, a, by an eight-year-old. Yeah, and, yeah, totally. Uh, <laughs> which just makes him even worse. And, you know, like you say, the, the gremlin's a big improvement. But I, I really like how he, he didn't, you know, just put it out there straight away. You just see it sort of slithering across the ring, uh, the, the wing uh, and disappearing a few times, that sort of thing. So it really just builds it beautifully. Yeah, I mean, for my money, it, it's, it's, the, it's the one that works on all levels for me. I haven't really got any criticisms of it. It's, um, it, it also feels the best paced um, out of all of the segments as well. I, I said during... Um, uh, time, uh, the time enough last. I said during it's a good life that it does feel like it's overstays its welcome a little bit. Um, but with this one, I think that from start to end, it's just it's perfectly pitched, it's perfectly paced, and it's I, I think it's, it's a tour de force. Really, <laughs> it really is gripping stuff. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's got the uh, it's got the it's got the cameo as well. It's uh, it's the one with the sale and cameo in it. Uh, but yeah. it's his wife Carol, who's um, at the uh, who's the one who asked the flight attendant. You know, when he's having some mini breakdown in the in the toilet cubicle, who kind of goes over and asks what's going on and is he okay? That's Carol Salem for the, the equalised uh, and holding a, a Twilight Zone magazine as well. Is <laughs> she brilliant? <Yeah. laughs> nice, nice plug. Nice plug. Um, yeah, <laughs> I. Uh, it's it's nice that it actually you know it built to something so good. I guess um, so. It wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a waste of time. It did uh, it does justify its existence in a way. <laughs> That's enough of that noise, huh? Who needs it anyway? How about a little music? Sure. <laughs> Let the midnight special. Hey, let's shine a light on me. I love Credence. So you had a big scare up there, huh? Oh, yeah. Want to see something really scary? I guess 
all we need to say is, you know, the movie as a whole, not looking at it story by story, but as a viewing experience, is it is it worth anyone's time? I, I funny enough, I was actually asked this today at work um, when I was talking about that we were going to be recording this this evening. They did ask, "Do you think it's worth me watching?" And I was contemplating whether lending them the DVD for someone who's never seen the Twilight Zone before. And I'm still no, unsure. No, 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 don't do that. <laughs> no, pick episodes. Jeez, Louise. <laughs> that was my thought process. I'm like, I think this is the best introduction uh, to the Twilight Zone as a whole. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm unsure whether it is worth anyone's time. I think for fans, it's a, it's a nice exercise, I suppose, to watch, and it's nice to see different takes on the stories that you like. But as someone coming into it fresh, I really don't think there's much to take away. I think the best thing about it is the fact that it led to the AT series, and I don't know if the AT series would exist without the film. I mean, that's called, that's that's damning with faint praise, to be fair, and I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> um, I think there's some genuinely good moments in it. I think you take as a whole. This is the thing about anthologies. Like um, over in the states, like VHS is being released, and it's coming out over here in the UK, beginning of next year. And the only thing people seem to be able to agree on is that at least one of the stories they don't like, but they can't guarantee which one it is because everyone's got their own opinions about what works and what doesn't work. Mm. And I think we, I think possibly because we've all come from a similar background in terms of what we like about the Twilight Zone, we've kind of all come with a similar kind of point of view. Mm-hmm. But I think some people will. I can guarantee some people prefer Kick the Can rather than Nightmare on uh, 20,000 Feet. And you can almost guarantee it. So in, no, in, that, in that sense, I think, because you know, of tone and, and that kind of stuff. So I think for me personally, I mean, I like the prologue and I like the two, I, like, I really like the last two stories. And that's enough for me to justify saying you should watch it. As I said, I would not use that as any introduction to the Twilight Zone ever because tonally <laughs> it's so different. And if you want to get them to start getting into any kind of Salem's work, I mean, it, you know, he's he's barely involved in truth, apart from this lovely, you know, that lovely little voiceover at the epilogue, and that's it really. So, I mean, yes, it has it has benefits, and I, I, you know, I, and I do enjoy it, but I think you've got to you've got to get through that first story before you get to it. I'd agree with that. I mean, sometimes I am as interested in how things fail as as how they succeed. Um, you know, look at James Bond, Never Say Never Again. I, I don't think it's much cop, but I'm interested because it it is quite a curiosity, you know what I mean, in Bond history. Sean Connery coming back and remaking a film that he'd already been in however many years earlier that sort of thing and this I think is I I put it overall as probably an interesting failure because it just doesn't work as a whole it's got two things that one that really works and one that mostly works but the, the whole just isn't satisfying so it justifies its existence for those ones that do. It doesn't justify its existence because, unfortunately, someone died during it. You know, people died during yeah. its making. Um, but if you put that to one side, uh, as we have quite successfully done until I just brought it up. But if you, um, <laughs> but if you know, if you put that to one side, it's. I put it down as an interesting failure, and I will probably take out that blu-ray every now and again and just watch those last two stories and 
one thing, and you've just mentioned it, Chris, that I did get a genuine sort of emotional response in a way. I wasn't crying or anything, but um, was <laughs> when you heard Rod Serling's voice at the end, because I hadn't really seen it in its entirety, I just thought, how nice is that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice little Especially with the music as well. So I guess where we go from here is that can Twilight Zone exist without Rod Serling? There's been there's been attempts to bring it back. They've went so far and then and then disappeared. And there's been a lot of noise about the Twilight Zone movie, but it's been it's been dragging on for a while now and we seem to be edging closer to it rather than, you know, sprinting closer to it, but what are, what are your thoughts on the future of the Twilight Zone? I mean, with regards to the movies, uh, I'm, I was just trying to sort of place in my mind then where we, we currently are in its production. Obviously, Matt Reeves has now left. Mm. Um, so I, I don't really know what's next for the movie. I, I, another director hasn't stepped in yet, have they? Not that I know of. Uh, hang on. I think no, it was the... I think that, as I said, I think the last rumor I heard was that because Rupert Wyatt left uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes around the same time. And and they were there were thoughts that they were going to basically switch switch projects. Nice. Um, but I, I I don't know. I'd like to see a new movie. I, I really would. But I don't know where we're going from here. Obviously, we had the the announcement just before we started recording that um, Brian Singer's production company is working on a, a new uh, TV series. But it, I don't know whether it's if you want to quote the uh, Law of Diminishing Returns because the eighty series I think certainly had its moments. Actually, I think they had some really, really good moments. I think there's some really great episodes in there. But you couldn't really say the same about the 2000 series. Mm. Um, there's just something about it that seems very off. I'm not sure whether it's just Forrest Whitaker, who I really like. I don't know whether he just wasn't right for that role, uh, for, the, for the Rod Serling role. So I, I don't know. I mean, what are your guys' thoughts for, for a new TV series? I mean, it's the ideal, I suppose, because the the last bit of movie news I heard was that it was one story, and it was a bit like that Richard Matheson episode with a pilot who's out of time. Yeah, that was kind of like um, be, being thrust forward like 90-odd years or something like that, which kind of hints at Twilight Zone episodes but isn't directly related to one. Yeah. yeah. So, it, you know, I've always had this thing about, you know, if they're going to knock these out, I mean, because I remember speaking to Mark Zickery and he was saying, you know, Sixth Sense is a Twilight Zone movie such and such as and he was naming all these movies that are, are twilight zone movies in a sense and i could see where he's coming from and i agree to a degree and if they were knocking these movies out every couple of years where that you know in 10 years time you'll have a nice uh box set of all these twilight zone movies then okay i can see that but i've also had a bit of an aversion to the one story twilight zone movie i'm not quite sure i'm on board with that so the ideal is if they can get someone really smart to to make a, a new TV show, that would probably be the ideal for me. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. Um, I think it's fair to say, I mean, literally this got announced about half an hour before we started recording. Wow. So we're kind of... Uh, <laughs> Panic, panic. I saw somebody uh, text me saying you were called tonight. Look at this. Like, Jesus. Um, <laughs> but, um, I mean, there's there's no say. There's no writer. There's no, there isn't a network. It's literally Singer basically saying we're stepping towards this. And that's it. I think 
in terms of a movie, I just can't see it happening. I think it's one of those things where it's just going to get, it's been stuck in development hell for so long. I mean, the fact that they announced that a script exists, that's that's already had like four or five people working on it. That sounds kind of okay, but I bet they saw Looper and panicked. Because, you know, yeah. time, yeah, it's, I mean, I know it's not directly the same, but you could have slapped Twilight Zone on, on Looper and people would have kind of gone with it. It's, I mean, there's, there is intelligent sci-fi currently being made. There's not a lot of it, but uh, there is some. That's probably where they think they should go and just try and use the brand name of Twilight Zone on top. Mm-hmm. Whether or not that would be a Twilight Zone movie in any kind of proper sense, apart from as a labeling exercise, I don't know. But as we were saying before, I mean, people people have expectations of what a Twilight Zone movie would be. Um, it would have a narration. It would be. Uh, it would have some form of twist. It would have a science fiction element to it. And well, however right or wrong that is of uh, what the series is, you know, what the series was like, that's what the expectation would be now. Partly because of you know the way the Simpsons have basically portrayed it. Mm. And you know, a lot of a lot of kids' introductions to the Twilight Zone will be. You know those stories. I mean, you know, you could make a film, or you could use, you could do something like to save man now. But everyone will look at that and go, Simpsons did that. Mm. <laughs> so, and it's painful to say it, but it's probably true. And you know, if for me personally, if you're going to make, I'm, I'm starting to ramble. I'm quite passionate, but um, if you're going to make a a Twilight Zone movie, I think you've got to, you know, set it at Christmas, uh, do one of the stories in black and white, make it an anthology, and have it you know and just do it really traditional and keep it quite cheap but you know it doesn't have to be grand but it has to be well written so either go back to the original sale and scripts or do something of a similar tone and then you know that might work you might be able to make some kind of something that people return to every year but aside from that i just can see it just even a not happening or b just flopping yeah it might just remain in development hell as uh, mm. one of those, oh, we'd like uh, kind of like the Outer Limits movie, I suppose. Um, just one of those things that never really comes to fruition. Yeah. Um, I, 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 much like you guys, I'm very kind of against doing it as one whole story, especially if they're talking about uh, one of the um, reports that I'd read a little while back. So they were thinking of adapting, say, taking one of the original episodes and stretching out over a feature length of time. And um, I remember I wrote a piece for Flicker and Myth. Um, a couple of months back, saying that one of the ones they did talk about was Eye of the Beholder. Now, wow. uh, as you both well know, I love that episode, but yeah. that can barely fill a 22-minute runtime, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> an hour-and-a-half movie. Well, Salem struggled when he was doing hour-long episodes for season four, didn't he? So, I mean, it's not... Yeah, you can tell a lot of those have just got a lot of padding uh, about yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the idea of going to 90 minutes, because it would have to be 90 minutes, but these days, you know, yeah. they want it to be like two and a half hours, don't they? So it's totally even worse. <laughs> yeah. Unless you're Peter Jackson, in which case you'd split into three movies. Three movies, <laughs> just have the twist the last 10 minutes at the end. Yeah. <laughs> I like what you said, Chris, about um, people's expectations of, of what a Twilight Zone episode is and so on. And that sort of... It's probably just because with you know looking back we pick up on certain tropes and certain things about the twilight zone and i think audiences need probably retraining in a way as as to what it really was it it wasn't always twists it wasn't always science fiction which i think is why a tv series is is the way to go um and we have so many 
you know, clever... Man, imagine if you could get, like, Guillermo del Toro doing an episode. I mean, the budgets would probably go mm. through the roof when you got if you got people <laughs> of that calibre, but the, there are so many, you know... J.J. Um, Abrams loves The Twilight Zone. Guillermo del Toro loves Night Gallery, and he probably loves The Twilight Zone, too. Um, yeah. You know, if you could get these smart people on board, even as, as producers... Brian Singer, he's a smart guy. I've liked some of what he's done. It's got potential, I suppose. Um, but I mean, is there anyone who you would like to see at at the helm? I want Nolan. Nolan. I want Christopher Nolan. I mean, if you know, if you're talking films that you know could possibly have had that label on Inception, it's probably the closest thing to a big budget film that Warner put out that could fit into that kind of Twilight Zone mold. Although you know, it's a, it's really more. It's got closer. It's we've all got more in common with a James Bond movie, in truth, mm-hmm. but. You know, that kind of, and even to the end where there's kind of a, a mystery or, you know, was he asleep or was he not? I think you could fit that kind of stuff in. Um, but really, I mean, you know, I mean, I, you know, I mentioned VHS, but, you know, give it to up and comers, give it to people with something to prove. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody will, will push the boat out or try and do something different. And, you know, if you if you give, if you give enough, you know, a couple of quid to enough people, you'll be able to get four or five stories that are strong enough yeah. and possibly will carry it, you know? I mean, the thing is, these days, uh, we're probably dealing with a bit more of a sophisticated audience um, where twists, you know, they they will see them a mile off. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can't rely on that. And, and to be fair to the old episodes, the rewatchability isn't in the fact that there was a twist ended every now and again. It, it's everything else. It's that depth, isn't it? And it's that richness yeah. of the story and the characters and so on they were yeah, so yeah. well written which is why yeah, i think a lot of people go back and it's why the series has lasted you know has stuck with people's memories for the last you know 50 60 years it's because they're just so well written i was gonna say you, got, you know rich characters and just uh, incredibly engaging dialogue and that, that's why we, you know we're still sitting here in, in 2012 talking about a show that that ended theoretically ended in 1964 yeah no absolutely and i think um You've got to bear in mind as well that Salem wrote the rule book on a lot of this kind of mm. these kind of twist endings. You know what I mean? That these these the he, he, he you know Twilight Zone did it first. It kind of set the tone. So it's very difficult when people look back at it now and say, "Well, it's quite obvious." Well, it, you know, it wasn't at the time. Mm. So you know, it's one of those. I think you know, it, obviously, it would be wonderful for you know them to make a film or to make a series that you know defined. TV or you know TV now, as much as Twilight Zone defined it, then whether that's possible or not, I don't know. I very much doubt it. Yeah, yeah. I think TV TV's a really big, uh, 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 quite a big enterprise now, especially because a lot of TV shows look more like films than some films do. Um, so with the budgets put into them, so I suppose that uh, maybe a Twilight Zone TV series could be the best thing for the franchise, really, to then lead, possibly lead into a film. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, I mean, in terms of, you know, doing something a bit braver and a bit different, then probably it would be, you know. I mean, you know, some of the best stuff that's coming out of America at the moment is, you know, Game of Thrones and Walking Dead and that kind of stuff. People look at uh, Night Gallery as, you know, the thing that Sailing did next, I suppose, but I always think a, a new Night Gallery, now that, that's that got potential. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, 
it's you know this um, this love of the ghost, you know the short ghost stories. I think you know a good a good horror anthology. I think there's still there's always there's always a place for that. I don't know if if Night Gallery's got the the sway or the you know any more for that kind of stuff. But yeah. I mean, I'd love to see more. I mean, I'm I'm I'm, I'm just wrapping up the uh, the podcast now. We've got a uh, I've got one more to put out, which is actually from the original series. Then there's a couple on syndication, and then I'm I'm done. So you know, wow. it'd be nice for somebody to turn around to give me some more to cover. <laughs> My God. Man, you you really showing me up to be honest. I'm still on season one of Twilight Zone. <laughs> it's become a bit of an obsession. It's like this. I've got something I want to do afterwards, so it's kind of like get through this, get through this, get through this. Yeah. It's horrible, really. You know, people love it. Be like the response has been amazing. I never imagined the response we'll get from it. Uh-huh. And um, and I'm, I'm but now like you hit a point, and like once they cancelled the series, the seasons, it just the quality goes off a cliff. <laughs> so like, I'm just in the depths of some awful, awful stuff. Like I'm putting out one, well, I put on last week, which was, you know, somebody getting chased by a man in a monkey suit. I mean, it's literally like Albert <laughs> Costello level. And it's very difficult to kind of, trying to be enthusiastic. Hey, thanks for listening. This is a man in a monkey suit. <laughs> so time, time, time to wrap it up and move on, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I, um, you know, I have I do hope for the best, you know. I think it's it's possible and I really got my fingers crossed that someone really smart gets a hold of it and we, we do see the Twilight Zone again and uh, it is respectful of what came before and you know gives us something bit fresh as well. But uh, I guess only time will tell. So um gentlemen, I, I you know, I think uh that's that's all we've got left to say unless there's anything you want to add much like you i'm very hopeful for the twilight zone but if i suppose it's one of these things that if we never get a new movie or we never get a new tv show we're still got the old tv show to to watch and you know that will never be taken away from us mm-hmm. yeah even this movie which i half like um <laughs> 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 uh, no i'd just like to say you know f- thanks for having us um you know and um uh, I've, you know, I've, it, it's it's been great, and uh, you know, I've, I've enjoyed tonight, but also obviously enjoyed my time doing the Night Gallery podcast. Still, still available on the on the Twilight Zone Network if anyone wants to listen to it. Hint, hint. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and if you know, and you know, obviously without I don't know if I do mention it on my own podcast, but without Tom, um, my podcast wouldn't exist. He's he completely helped me and set me up, and he's given me the confidence to be able to kind of do you know make that show as good as it can do. And also to do, you know, more and bigger things moving on as well. So I'd like to just say like thanks again to Tom. No problem, man. It's it's been really good seeing you know how how the show has developed over time and and how good it has got. Um, it's a shame that the show never ended on a high note that you're covering, but um, <laughs> you know, but uh, you know, as a podcaster, it's 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 great to listen to. Um, yeah, and uh, so Luke, what? Your podcast, give that a plug. Uh, yeah, we just uh, finished the first episode, or just released the first episode of the Flickering Myth podcast, um, which is for our, the the website that I'm a co-editor on. Uh, we're discussing um, Seven Psychopaths. Um, we have a nice bit of a roundtable discussion with some of the other writers for the site. Um, so yeah, it, it's available on iTunes. Um, if you want to go to flickeringmyth.com, you can find it on there. Um, yeah, please go and subscribe to it, download it. 
took me ages to edit. So um, <laughs> so, yeah, some feedback on it, that'd be lovely. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a steep learning curve putting a podcast out to discover. <laughs> Tell me about it, man. Absolutely. Um, okay, well, this will be uh, this will be going out just before Christmas. So I uh, I'd like to wish everyone out there and my two guests a very happy Christmas, and uh, I hope you enjoy yourselves. And it's also uh, it's Mr. Sailing's birthday on Christmas Day, so uh, we'll be raising a glass to him as well. Thanks so much. Yeah. Cheers, guys. Yeah. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Thank you. And guys, I think if they ever do get that Twilight Zone movie off the ground, then uh, maybe we'll come back and talk about that one as well. I look forward yeah, to it. Sure. That'll be great. So there we have it, Twilight Zone the movie now. If you recall, I did uh, ask for people to send their thoughts in about the film, and we would include them in the podcast uh, unfortunately, it didn't get as much as I would have liked, and I was planning on kind of uh, interspersing these sorts throughout the podcast, but we did get some, and I'd like to thank everyone who did contribute. So I've got an email here that I'm going to read out, and uh, then we'll play some MP3 feedback to just finish the podcast off and, uh, and play us out. So this first email is from Elmer Gonzalez, and they write, Dear Tom, I so love the Twilight Zone movie. I watch it whenever it comes on TV. I think about buying it whenever I see it in stores. I always pick it up and debate whether I should get it or not. But I never do, because I think about Vic Morrow and how I skip his story every single time. Every single time. It makes me sad. And I hate so much knowing about the accident and the innocent little children. I don't like looking at Mr. Morrow. It's too heartbreaking for me, and I'm not even a fan of his. And sometimes when I do catch his story by accident, I'll instantly change the channel because it hurts my heart. When I saw the father crying on the stand, it broke my heart to pieces. I was crying, and I hope with all my heart that Mr. Morrow, Micah Din Lee, and Shin Yi Chen didn't suffer. And I hope Jesus is holding them tenderly right now. But enough of that. The beginning is fun and spooky to watch. I taped it to my spooky tape. It's brilliant how they got Burgess Meredith to say the Twilight Zone intro. And I like the story about the boy with the powers. When I first saw it, I thought, damn, this family is too happy. Then I realised the reason. And I often wonder why they don't try and get away, like knock him out and run. No one can or will ever top the original Twilight Zone. And Rod Serling is a genius. And that's from our good friend Elmer Gonzalez. Thank you, Elmer. Appreciate it. Next up is a piece of MP3 feedback from a good friend of the show and a good friend of mine for a while now, a gentleman by the name of Dave Jacola. Now, Dave's been on the Twilight Zone podcast before. He uh, sent in some some feedback for, I think it was the Monsters Are Due on Maple Street episode. And you will also hopefully remember a reading of the story Brothers Beyond the Void by his lovely wife Brandy. So let's hear what Dave's got to say about Twilight Zone the movie. Hello Tom, it's Dave from the Inside Outcast over at your former abode, geekplanetonline.com. I'm sorry to say that Brandy isn't with me this time around. It is the holiday season, and being a wage slave in retail hell, she's at work at the moment. Besides, she's seen the Twilight Zone movie only once, and cannot recall that much from it. 
I, on the other hand, have seen the Twilight Zone movie many times when it was on heavy rotation on HBO back in the day. And I recall not being overly thrilled by it at the time. It was just something to play in the background. Some stories in the anthology are better than others. So let's get into it. My first impression is that the Twilight Zone movie suffers from 1980s excess. Several of the segments are big just to be big, and the acting too is big. In the original television series, the production company for the most part aimed for realism, only straying into the fantastic when absolutely necessary for the story. But the movie is primarily fantastic. And as such, it's more difficult for the viewer to suspend disbelief. And I think this is most true with the third segment, A Good Life, which is my least favorite of the segments. And while several images are quite disturbing, such as the monstrous rabbit that was pulled out of the hat and the sister without a mouth, overall, it's an attack on the senses and becomes more annoying than anything else. Plus, it ends weekly with basically not even a slap on the wrist as the visiting woman decides to take the boy with her and learn from him and try to teach him morality in return. I think it's undeserved. Perhaps the best segment is the last, which is the remake of A Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, with John Lithgow filling in for the role originally portrayed by William Shatner. And I have to say, I think I prefer Shatner's performance as someone who, though somewhat nervous, nonetheless looked like somebody who'd at least pulled it together, while Lithgow has a nervous energy throughout. And it's strange that I find Shatner's performance the more subtle of the two. It figures that Steven Spielberg chose the most sentimental (laughs) of the stories. And then, of course, the first story, directed by John Landis, had the notorious helicopter crash that I still recall to mind quite vividly. I remember seeing clips of the legal proceedings. So in my opinion, I prefer the original stories to those in the movie. And although, looking back, a lot of the rocket ships, aliens, and so on seemed a bit hokey, if you consider that it was built off their ideas of space travel at the time, of the rocket technology they had then, they were doing the best that they could. And I, for one, applaud that. I see that Rod Serling and the production company around the Twilight Zone were providing the best quality television they could. And having viewed the series through Netflix, I think, for the most part, it holds up while the film I'm loath to revisit. On just another note, 
You know I listen to a lot of podcasts, and one of them is Love That Album, and the host of Love That Album, Morris, I found out, listens to your show. And when I found that out, I had to contact him and say that we had a connection going back to the Gentleman's Grindhouse on Geek Planet Online, and that I regard you as a close friend. It just shows what a small community podcasters form. So a shout out to Morris. And a shout out to you, Tom, and the very successful Twilight Zone podcast. I look forward to many more episodes. Thank you and uh, happy podcasting. Well, thank you, Dave. I appreciate it. Thanks for thanks for sending some feedback in. You know, you're someone who can always be relied on for that, and I always appreciate it. And uh, if you want to hear more from Dave, you can check out his podcast, The Inside Outcast, and that is over at the website geekplanetonline.com now next up we have some feedback from a new friend of the show called Ibarian X Pirello and he's also a podcaster and you'll be able to hear the details of his podcast uh, in this feedback and uh, it's a photography podcast so any photographers out there want to check out Ibarian X's uh, podcast then uh, give it a listen I'll hand you over to him Hi, this is Ibarian X from the Candid Frame Photography Podcast. I can be found at the candidframe.com. And uh, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to share my thoughts on the Twilight Zone movie. I've uh, been a great fan of your podcast. And uh, this provided me an interesting opportunity to see the movie again, which I don't think I had seen since it had originally been uh, originally been released, and I remember watching the m- movie then and feeling a little disappointed with the with the final result. And in viewing it again, I found it still entertaining. I, I really enjoyed the performances of John Lithgow, Vic Morrow, Kevin McCarthy, Scatman Crothers. It was really fun getting to see actors who I've, I've grown up with. Really, sort of. Well, chew the scenery in, in, in some cases. And I think that that's really sort of the, the big difference between the performances in the movie as compared to the original um, the original shows and episodes in The Twilight Zone, though the first one uh, was never actually, actually a Twilight Zone episode. I think a big part of the film is the fact that it's really a film of its time. It's being directed by some of the biggest directors of the 80s, and each each segment can't be, you know, it's influenced so much by by the director and the style at the time and just the nature of, of motion pictures. So when I take a look at the movie, I I don't want to say that it's dated because I don't, I think that in terms of the stories, they're, they're sort of sort of timeless, but in terms of the look and the feel of the storytelling, uh, I think you definitely know what period these were, were made from. Um, in respect to two of the episodes, I think that um, Kick the Can is is actually no, uh, it's a good life. Is the film in which that I noted the real difference in terms of just the overall presentation. At, at no point during that that segment do I feel like the fear and the anxiety of those people that live in that house. Um, it's it's so it's so. It's so dependent on the visuals and the sort of the special effects there that the performances of the actors just seem sort of like a, a cartoon. And that sort of threat of that little boy was was never evoked in the way that it was in the original episode. And I think one of the reasons for that is the fact that the episode 
um, when it was originally filmed, you didn't have a huge budget with which to work with. So they were really dependent on the actors themselves to sort of evoke that terror of having this little boy have control, have control over every aspect of their lives. And I think that that was sort of lost with, with this particular version of that, of that story. It's still fun. And it's, it's interesting to see how technology really allowed you to do something completely different with that story. But that, that first telling of it is just I felt so anxious and I felt the dread of all those actors in those roles in the original piece and that was completely missing from it. And I think that the change in the in the ending was probably, you know, needed as a result of just the overall tone of the film. It couldn't be a, a, a roll downer. So I think that that, you know, that they felt that it was necess- a necessity to serve the entire film, but for me, um I much prefer the the dark the darker um, you know, sort of nebulous ending that existed in the in 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 the first version, and with the kick the can, I I love Scatman Crothers. I think uh, I always enjoyed him in all the various films that he was as is. But this this story was really changed uh, a lot. Uh, when you look at the original original story, it comes from the point of view of those two friends and how this this magical moment as a result of kicking the can, um, you know creates a schism between the two and you really get to see the sort of the tension and the remarkable transformation that happens both both physically and emotionally between those two and that's completely lost by having scatman brothers take on this for lack of a better word magical negro um role in in the film and you know and the scatman does a great performance i think overall it just weakens the the overall the overall episode. Um, th- those are just my thoughts. I mean, the John Lithgow episode is fantastic. Um, the tragedy of the, the first segment is unfortunate because I think Vic Morrow was doing some amazing work, and I think that that story would have been really true to the spirit of Rod Serling's Twilight Song. But that's all I have. Um, thanks for allowing me to do this, and I really look forward to listening to everyone else's contributions on this episode. And best of luck with the Twilight Zone podcast. Thank you, Barry Next, Great feedback and uh, some great thoughts there on Twilight Zone, the movie. And uh, like I say, go and check out his podcast if, uh, if photography is your thing. And uh, I hope we hear from him again. Uh, we uh, might be working on something down the line that he's offered his services on, so we'll see how that turns out. So that's all we have for this uh, Christmas special about Twilight Zone, the movie. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. I've certainly enjoyed... It's been nice to have other voices on the podcast to get a bit of discussion going and good to get that feedback as well. And I hope next time that we uh, do something like this that more people will see what we're going for here and, and get involved. I do have one last mention before I go and that is from a gentleman called Will in Sacramento. And uh, he sent me an email recently saying uh, some nice words about the podcast. But he mentions uh, his new his new daughter, Georgia, and she was two months old uh, at the time he sent me the email, and that was back in October. So Georgia will be, hopefully, enjoying her first Christmas uh, this year. So, Will, I, uh, I thank you for your thoughts, and uh, all the best for Christmas, and I hope Georgia enjoys herself. So take care. All right, well, that's enough from me, and my thanks again to uh, Luke and Chris for joining me. And I'll see you next time in the Twilight Zone. Bye-bye.
There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone.